I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. George Diaz knows how to get to the heart of the matter. He has a big heart himself. As a writer, it led him beyond the surface to the stories behind the story, to the homes of Dale Earnhardt, Roberto Duran, and a grieving family in Cuba, where George was born and fled with his family at age four. George will tell us about those places and people and much more from his 40 years of covering sports. Welcome to the show, George. Great to be here, my friend. Good to good to reconnect with you via this fancy devices, things you got going on. Yeah, I know. What happened to us? We used to be like typing and on Radio Shack Tandies, and now we're speaking by, you know, the Internet. What is this Internet thing, George? I don't know. I'm just trying to figure out Snapchat. We'll go from there. Well, you know, George, 29 years at Durlano Sentinel. You were also at the Miami Herald for quite a bit. I think of you as Mr. Florida. You know, like you're an institution there, not in an institution, but an institution in Florida. That could happen, too. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Brighton's sunshiny, optimistic. I don't know why you're hanging out with me, <laughs> but I did a little research preparing for your appearance on this show, and I came across a quote. And the quote is, I had aspirations to be an athlete, but I found that challenging since I had no athletic skills. <laughs> Could that have been uh, my? I, I have been one who fired that one out there. You wrote that in your goodbye <laughs> column when you retired from the Orlando Sentinel after 29 years. And I just want to say I can attest that you had no athletic skills. Well, thank you, man. I'm feeling the love already. We're five yeah. minutes into this thing. <laughs> yeah, it's okay, right. man. Good, good talk. Love the TED talk. See you later. We actually did play a lot of basketball together. In the one year you did not uh, spend in Florida, you were in Cincinnati in the late mm-hmm. 80s. I was just starting, and we used to play a lot of basketball together. So you well, were actually a good You were a good player. I'm just joking you, George. Yeah, I had my moments. Yeah, yeah, me too. <laughs> you know, it's like what they say about sports writers, right? Those who would if they could, but they can't. So they it's, tell others who can how they should. <laughs> that's that's the whole game plan for, and it's worked somehow. It worked for quite some time. Well, one guy who one guy who could play basketball is a guy that you got to know pretty well down in Orlando. Uh, a guy by the name of Shaquille O'Neal. Yeah. And uh, Shaq, you know, 19 years in the uh, NBA, people team, you know, they, they think of Shaq as being with the Lakers, but, but really his career started in Orlando. You know, we know Shaq, the basketball player. Tell us a little bit about what he was like to deal with uh, as a person. For me, it was great. Uh, he put Orlando on the map. He put Orlando on the, not only on the NBA map, but on the world map, because um, for the short run that he was here, he was just... Um, it was a great mat. It was a great marriage for a franchise in a city looking for relevance, and a guy who was whatever he was a twenty-something-year-old kid. Um, I remember doing a magazine piece on him as as uh, a year or two into this uh, thing, and um, one of the things that that uh, was relayed to me was that the neighborhood kids would like basically knock on his door and say, "Hey, can Shaq come out and play? We want to go play paintball or whatever." You know, so it's and he would. That's that's just the, he would. So he was larger than life, but he was also had this little bit of innocence about him that he didn't 
He didn't, um, we all have egos and obviously he had one as well, but he didn't consider himself to be that, uh, you know, like he was the biggest kid on the block, but sometimes he didn't necessarily have the biggest ego on, on the block. Yeah, I didn't know Shaq. Uh, I never really crossed paths with him during my own career, uh, but just knowing him from television, and he just, he does. He seems like a big, jolly kid, a guy that you would like to hang out with. Uh, was, was he good with the media? He was good. He had his moments. I, I, I was fortunate because I, I got uh, to know him a little bit better. I did that magazine story and that gave me a little bit of uh, access to going to his house and doing things of that nature. And um, there were some funny stories, you know, with him. I remember in the Olympics, um, in, in the 96 Olympics, that's when Orlando, there was a series of events and that could be a whole podcast of why he left Orlando. I think it was a perfect storm of different circumstances. But during that time is when they had a press conference at quote Planet Reebok in Atlanta, where he announced he was going to sign with the Lakers. But during mm -hmm. that time, you know, we were so close. And I remember there was one time there was a mix zone and he was trying to get through some uh, I believe it was a TV or a radio interview, and it was from Chile, and the guy did, did not speak uh, much English, and he kept going, check Chile, check Chile. And mm -hmm. Shaq finally came up to him, and the guy asked him through an interpreter or whatever how he uh, ended up, um, you know, did he know anything about Chile? And he said, uh, not uh, the, I heard, I didn't know much about Chile, but I had seen two of my friends who are world travelers. And then he pointed to Brian McIntyre of the NBA, uh -huh. uh, who was in media communications and me. So he said, <laughs> Brian McIntyre and George Diaz went to Chile and they, they really loved it. So I need to go. <laughs> so he was just busted. So yeah, this is going back to Chile and he's telling him a story that's completely fabricated about his buddies going to Chile. George, wasn't there a time where like you were covering the magic and the bulls and the playoffs and, and Shaq had a bunch of tickets and he like, Got you roped into something with the yeah. tickets? Like, what was that all about? Well, it was uh, it was a playoff. It was one year the uh, Bulls and the uh, the Magic. I believe it was Eastern Conference Finals, and there was uh, I think it was twelve or thirteen tickets, Todd, that uh, he was given um, for his friends and family, or whatever. And for whatever reason, he just didn't like them, didn't need them. And we were doing the pregame scrum there in the locker room, and he just handed them to me. So I, um, I went outside. I just went outside to the, um, the United Center, and there was actually a basketball court like a block or two away. I just handed him some, some kids, and it was kind of a neat deal. I mean, I, I, I did what I did. It wasn't, it wasn't me. And you know, it was obviously he gave me the tickets, but it was kind of a neat thing that all these kids got to see uh, an NBA uh, playoff game uh, you know, finals between uh, Magic and the uh, and the Bulls. But uh, it was fun. It was a fun thing to do. But that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how he was. That's how he ruled. Yeah, but that's the thing. When, when you were in a, a job like we had, uh, you got to see people behind the scenes a little bit. And you got mm -hmm. to see another side of somebody. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the great things that I treasure about what we used to do. And I, I, I'm sure you probably feel the same way. No, there's no question about it. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit of a darker side, but a lot of times the, the moments where, where you do have a laugh and you and you really, um, for me, you know, you, you have this sense of uh, pride and accomplishment, I guess. And, and just, you know, you feel good about being there in the moment. Yeah. Well, sports writing got, got you to meet Shaq. It got you really to travel around the world. 
uh, sports writing took you all over the place. You went to eight Olympics. You covered, I think, probably six or seven Super Bowls, you, Daytona 500. You went around the track once, right, in the car? Oh, uh, I've been around the track a few times. Yeah. Tony yeah. Stewart, Brad Keselowski, that kind of uh, that kind of stuff. It's, it's, uh, it's been a wild ride, as they say. Yeah, it's literally taking you everywhere. One place it did take you back to was your homeland, your homeland of Cuba. And um, for those who don't know, George, you, you were born in Cuba. And I think you lived there to what, age four, perhaps? Yeah, I was almost five when I came over, Tom. Almost five. So when I think back in February of 1961, your family um, fled Cuba. This is only a couple years after uh, Castro had overthrown the Batista regime and instituted a communist government. Uh, were you young enough? Could you remember your family leaving Cuba at the time? No, but I, I it's I was again before I really you know barely remember what I had for lunch yesterday. So you know going back that far might was a challenge. But um, I do remember my family telling me the story that my my uncle uh, was pretty well off. We actually lived with him and a state maybe we should call it because there, there was horses and chickens and all that stuff but uh they tell me that when uh actually castro's forces used to start basically overtaking people's homes and when um castro's henchmen showed up at my house as a four-year-old i told them to leave that uh <laughs> they were not welcome there of course i don't think they listened to four-year-old George Diaz because uh, <laughs> <laughs> so but uh, but that's the story that I hear uh, uh, from my family so uh, very very sad circumstances but hey it got me over here and um, yeah you you moved to what Fort Lauderdale or, or Miami or yeah we landed in in Lauderdale ended up living with with that aunt and uncle and we start initially lived with them and then moved out on our own yeah. You're too young to really remember details, but do you think the experience of, of leaving your homeland, you know, did it inform your reporting and writing over the years with your... That's a good question. I don't know. I, it always, I think you're always shaped by your experiences. And uh, for bigger picture stuff, of course it did. It did. Uh, it certainly gave me a perspective of what the American dream is about and uh, the sacrifices that my parents made to come over here, which were great because they basically gave up everything for me and my two sisters. Um, and it and it also, every time there was a story um, about the Cuban-American experiences, you had the whole deal with the um, with Elian Gonzalez, who was taken back to Cuba. There were parts of history that became international news, and um, that always brought me back to how I got here. Right, right. Well, you actually did go back to Cuba, literally went back in 1991. You were a reporter for the Orlando Sentinel, and you went to cover the Pan American Games. First off, what, what were the Pan Am Games? They were like the Olympics, right? Yeah, the Pan Am Games were kind of a... Uh, if you will, a poor man's version of the Olympics. It's uh, Central and South America uh, countries. Most of the sports, I would say about maybe three quarters of the Olympic sports, we're talking summer sports, not nobody's bobsledding in Cuba. So, um, <laughs> but um, an interesting vibe, just just basically a scale, I would call it a scaled down version of the Summer Olympics. So you go back, this is 30 years after your father I think left behind a sister and two brothers. Your mother had left behind a half-brother and a sister she would never see again. There's all this family history with Cuba, and you go back. What was it like for you to go to your homeland? 
It was very, uh, very odd, and, and, and sometimes it was a little scary. Uh, I went with the United States Olympic Committee and a select group of journalists. We went over before the game started to kind of see what, you know, because this was a major undertaking for Cuba because they were a country with limited resources hosting these big games. We went from the Miami airport, I still remember vividly, there was no gate. We were very, it was very much of a clandestine charter thing. We mm. were just told to meet a certain place. We went, boom, we got on the plane, but there was no announcements and, and any of that nature. So it was still during that time, relationships were, were still very frosty between the two countries. They had made me get a, a Cuban passport because uh, they had said that, well, you were born in Cuba, therefore you're a Cuban citizen. And I didn't really like that that vibe, that condition, I, uh, terms of engagement. I actually called uh, the State Department and got through to somebody who said, look, I would not worry about it because I didn't want to go back to Cuba and be considered a Cuban citizen because, you, right. know, you know, I, I wanted to be able to go back <laughs> in case something happened. And I certainly right. wanted the protection of the American passport. Uh, but they said, look, they're just it's it's a cash grab. It was like an eighty, ninety dollar cost to get a passport. They don't want an international incident or anything that would cause them bad publicity, so I wouldn't worry about it. But the thing is when I landed there, there were some uh TV cameras there, uh, a TV crew from Cuba, and um they immediately found me. Like they knew I was coming. Wow. And they knew my background. And it was a little scary at first, very off-putting, as you can imagine. And But that's the kind of stuff that goes on there that we don't really pay much attention to or take for granted. It's obviously not on our radar screen, Todd, but that's the kind of influence and control that they have. They know a lot of things, right. and they want to know a lot of things. You were there people. for... You were there for about three weeks or so, and I think you were able to see some of your family, right? You were able to see an aunt, I believe. Yeah, she's may she rest in peace now. But she had she went to um, it was my dad's sister, and really out of all the relatives, the one I was more closely uh, close to, um, there was a couple of cousins. One of my cousins was a was a big Fidel fan, and we just basically chose not to talk politics. But my aunt was very sweet. And uh, going back to the police state that they had, we stayed in a tourist hotel, uh, the, the American Press Corps, the heart of Havana. And um, she had to go get like a hall pass to go visit me because locals were not allowed into the hotel for tourists. It was almost like an apartheid thing. And what made it even tougher, Todd, was my uncle had given her brother had given me a hundred dollars and said go spend this you know give them whatever they need and so we went to a store that was basically like a poor man's version of walmart or something like that it was it was but it was a tourist store and she was not supposed to go in so essentially there was a guard there and kind of had to sweet talk our way in there and it was kind of really annoying and very I had to really just keep my mouth shut because my initial impulse was just to just lay into this guy because he was being a jerk, not letting an 80-year-old lady in, or at least being very obstinate about it. But we got in, you know, I held my breath, we got in, and then my aunt you know, was starting, and, and we're talking about buying basic essentials like toilet paper and things of that, that's so, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and my aunt said, you know, why don't you get something for your mom? 
And even now I get a hard time. I choked up about it because, you know, it was, you know, she was thinking about other people and they needed so much more, you know, that, that stuff that we take for granted, that stuff that we take for granted all the time. So it was, as you can see, it was just a very, you know, one of those seismic experiences for me from a emotional standpoint, having to deal with all that. And, you know, I covered the games, and but I did do a lot of other stories that reflected that type of struggle that the Cuban people had as well. During your time there covering the sporting events, apparently Castro was everywhere, right? He was he was using it as a good propaganda tool to, to be all over the place. Was there more than one Castro? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. That's a good question. I don't know if there, there was a stand-in or not, but uh, he was a he's pretty large area. He's a pretty big guy for a Cuban, so I think they would be hard to he'd be hard to miss. Well, let's talk about the time you actually crossed paths with him during those Pan Am games. I think you went to a bowling <laughs> bowling yeah. place, a, a bowling alley of all places. Um, what was going on there? Why'd you end up in a bowling alley in Cuba? Well, it gets back to when you asked me about the Pan Am Games. There was a um, uh, bowling as part of the Olympic of their program, the Pan Am Game program. So they actually had to build a bowling alley because the bowling uh, centers had been basically shut down after the revolution. It was kind of a fun offbeat story, you know, one that I look forward to doing, and and it wouldn't be a little bit more. It would be a little bit more lighthearted and. Um, Within the context of that, I was also kind of the unofficial interpreter for the uh, for the small. It was kind of a smallish U.S. press corps there. Yeah, I think four, it was you and Archdeacon and Mark Purdy, uh, another guest. Mark on Purdy show. was there, and um, uh, Bill Conlon, who passed away, and uh, and Arch was there. But Arch was there as a uh, as a as a guest with his uh, one of the friends he had made over there. He wasn't. I don't think he was covering the event. He happened. <laughs> yeah. Typical Arch. He was going there uh, to kind of figure to be a low key thing to just he keep under the radar. And of course, Castro showed up. So, <laughs> so tell us. So tell us about that. So you, the reporters. I think Marine Boyle was the press liaison for uh, U.S. Bowling. I, I would love that job, right? Because it, it has to come with like cigarettes and beer, right? If exactly. Yeah. You know, and a very cool shirt. You know, with, right? So, uh, with so embroidery on she the seats all of you in this in the, in where the press is supposed to be sitting. But then you were told not to be sitting there, right? Yeah, it was like the Cuban press liaison for bowling. And I'm thinking, and she kept saying, you're not supposed to be here. And I really didn't. It was one of those deals that, that I was I was the only one who could communicate. So I was trying to tell them, hey, they don't want us to sit here. But again, you know, you're not talking. We're not in the like in in a in the Rose Bowl or anything or, you know, it's a bowling alley. And I really don't really care where we're sitting. She kept saying, well, these are for reserved for some Cuban officials. And, um, you know, she didn't really make herself clear until I finally, all of a sudden, I realized everybody in the in that bowling alley stands up. And I look, and there's Castro standing at the top steps, surrounded by two of his henchmen in green khaki outfits, and they've got machine guns strapped to their side. You mean they weren't wearing bowling shoes? No, nobody was wearing bowling shoes. And <laughs> and the kicker to the story is, Todd, that we were sitting in Castro's seats, which was probably not a good idea. To, you know, I wanted to be low-key as well. And there went my low-key uh, kind of uh, approach. So what was, I remember what, what, what was Castro like? What was it like to be around him? Well, I, you know, at that point, I'm just like, I, I really didn't want to be around him. 
um, I wanted to be as far away from him as I could. So uh, I was worried that uh, they might gun us down there on lane seven and it'd be like an Iwo Jima kind of statue that they would build, you know, uh, <laughs> honoring the death of the of the American journalist pigs who dared defy Castro. Yeah, um, you don't want to you don't want to go during a beer frame. I mean, come no, on. no. I so I was getting out of there, and um, I remember Conlon getting out his video camera, and I'm thinking like, dude, we just got to get out of here now while the getting's good. So basically, he's going down, and I'm going up, and uh, made it out alive. But I remember. Yeah, in Florida they do the same thing. I don't know how it is up north, but you go to Florida. It's it's the summer. It's ninety degrees out. And then you go to a bowling play alley, and it's like fifty degrees. And that's what it felt like. It was there at that time. But I literally remember sweating. Kind of, I was sweating because mm-hmm. my uh, my adrenaline rush was so much having to deal with that perspective. Bruce Martin, host of Pit Pass Indy. Each week, I go behind the scenes of the NTT IndyCar Series and introduce our listeners to the biggest stars of IndyCar, which features the Indianapolis 500 as its cornerstone event. The men and women that compete in IndyCar may be the bravest athletes in all of sport as danger lurks around every corner. They are able to look danger in the eye without flinching. That is why the NTT IndyCar Series features the best racing on the planet. Join me every week as we talk to the stars of IndyCar, including the legends of the Indianapolis 500 on Pit Pass Indy from Evergreen Podcast. Did you ever get a chance when those games ended to ever go back to Cuba, George? No, there was an opportunity. I guess I could have gone back when the Orioles did the uh, baseball detente thing. And I guess I was in, you know, later in the 2000s somewhere. My history, uh, history escapes me in terms of the exact date. But um, I got denied from the Cuban officials. Really? Uh, the credential because uh, of all the nasty things I've written about. Them. Oh. oh, wow. <laughs> so ban, ban from Cuba. Put that on the resume, pal. <laughs> that, that's a badge of honor. It is. I'll take that any day. Well, it surely shows that you had the journalistic chops to uh, do your job and do them in a tough circumstances. There you go. Well, you got banned from Cuba, but you uh, were not banned from boxing. No, thank God. And I know you spent a lot of spent a lot of years covering boxing, major championship fights, and I know you came across a lot of characters in that field. Um, you spent a lot of time around Tyson in his heyday when he was the champion of the world, but how do you end up eating Popeye's chicken with Mike Tyson? Well, it was one of the fights uh, in Vegas, and Don King has a place in Vegas, and during the time that King had him, Tyson was really, in in the press conferences, he was awful. He gave you nothing, but if you got him away from that scenario, he was pretty good. I mean, crazy good, but he was good. He was, a, <laughs> And so King would set up what he called these round tables. And boxing is pretty insular worlds where if you get kind of the hookup, um, it doesn't take it doesn't take long. All you got to do is cover X number of fights and you're you're kind of in. So I was even though, you know, I didn't have as much clout there just working with the good old little Cincinnati Post. I was in New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever. But I was part of that small insular world of boxing writers who um, who, uh, you know, they gathered had some scope of influence. So. Um, 
we went, King would set up these round tables with Tyson and he would just, he'd sit there on the couch and it was like therapy. At one point he was talking about how his wife at the time had just given birth to a daughter and he just started, he fast forwarded to the time she was going to start dating and how that was going to, that really freaked him out. Mm-hmm. And so he had said that during the, um, during the session. And then what happens is that there was, I think, about two vans that came. And um, for whatever reason, I just got left behind with another group. There was a couple of writers, you know, usually it's the Times or somebody else that they wanted a little bit more. So most everybody had left. There was only a few of us that's still there. I just happened to be, you know, the odd man out in a good way. so I got to stay behind, and when we stayed behind, it became even more informal to the point that everybody's getting up, walking around. And this is at Don King's house. Yep. Yep. <laughs> so I'm now in his breakfast nook, and King King always – first of all, he asked for coffee, somebody to make him coffee, and, he, and he, I remember him saying, not the regular coffee. I want some of that designer coffee. <laughs> what he meant by that is flavored. So. <laughs> designer coffee. Designer coffee, yes. So he was ahead of the game. He was ahead of the coffee game. He was, you know. So Don King's designer coffee brand coming to you soon, neighborhood of you soon. But anyway, and then he ordered the Popeye's fried chicken. I just happened to be next to Tyson and we're eating the fried chicken. And I'm trying to tell him in a nice way that, you know, he could probably, if his daughter is dating and he says be there at 10, if I'm dating his daughter, I'm there at like 930 just to be on the safe side so I don't get killed. Right, right. right. (laughs) (laughs) And so I tried to explain that dynamic in a much more, in a nicer, more subdued way, thinking like, you know, saying like, I think that, you know, uh, Mike, that whoever's dating your daughter would really respect you a great deal (laughs) and hold you in great reverence. How did he take the advice? (laughs) He, he... I can't do the voice. I remember saying, goes, that really effed me up, man, thinking about it. It really effed me up. I'm thinking, okay, I got nothing for you. So now you got the Cuban military after you. You've got got Tyson after you. (laughs) Yeah, I I didn't want to push the envelope too much with Tyson because, you know, I I don't want to get banned from Don King's house as well. Right, right. By the way, what was Don King's house like? Uh, opulent. George, uh, weren't you there when Larry Holmes and Trevor Burbick had a little bit of a street brawl and, and Larry went jumping off the, the car or something? Wasn't Oh, you're something? bringing back all the greatest hits. That might have been the greatest night of my life. <laughs> so Holmes is making, you know, X however many comebacks it is, right? So he is, he's fighting in Hollywood, but not California, my friend, Hollywood, Florida. At the, I think it was a diplomat. It was some hotel. It wasn't even a casino. And so he's fighting some guy. Was this the guy that the Magic uh, drafted and sent? Yeah, to, right. Yeah, family back to France. You know. Okay, yeah. right, right. <laughs> so he takes him out, even though Holmes is way past his prime. So he he fights and beats him. And you know, it's a it's a regular mundane story, right? There's nothing. There's no drama in, in this. We we all know that. Larry's washed out. He's just looking for a paycheck and, you know, doesn't want to leave, which, you know, the story of most boxers. So they do a press conference and the press conference is is during the press conference. Trevor Berwick shows up and starts calling out Holmes wanting to challenge him to fight right there. And 
in the right press there. conference. Yeah, for you know, not not at that time, not the very time, but you know, down the road. Now but you got also, two columns to write. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, it gets it gets better. So then he starts. He makes some reference to some girl named Jenny that Larry was dating, and that was Trevor's girlfriend, and he stole his girlfriend. Holmes did. You know, and, and Jenny, you know, he was, he's professing his love for Jenny or whatever. And I still remember we we were still, you know, at that point, we're still, you know, trying to make deadline. Everybody's typing away you're know, trying to, you know, get in some flash quotes and all that. And I remember John Saraceno from USA Today, uh, <laughs> because Burbick was right next to us screaming and Saraceno was telling Trevor, will you just shut up? I'm trying to write. I'm, I'm working here. <laughs> so, so we all let it go. You know, Trevor eventually disappears or whatever. But about 10 minutes later, some guy, just a flunky or whatever with the PR people there, says, hey, hey. Trevor and Larry are fighting in the parking lot. <laughs> <laughs> and we're all like, well, there goes deadlines. So yeah. we, sc- we all go scrambling over. And then Mike Marley, another, you know, one of these um, boxing writers that's, uh, you know, famous, infamous, if you will. Uh, and me and Saracino, there's a few others out there. There's not that many people covering this thing. But we go out there and there is the, the valet entrance. And at the valet entrance, we see Trevor and he had this bright, shiny, like brown suit and it's like been ripped and stuff already. <laughs> so they've already had a bit of a scrum. And so Trevor's out of breath and he's going, hey, Larry, Larry trying to get, yeah, he's like crazy. He's trying to get, and so he's going through all this and, and we're sitting there and then <laughs> this couple pro- pulls up in a little Toyota or something, right? And they're just wanting to valet park their car God bless them. They're there maybe on a you know special occasion, a nice night. Maybe they want to get a drink. But they didn't really expect that when they tried to valet park their car, Larry Holmes would jump on the roof <laughs> of the car <laughs> and catapult himself toward the herd as I, you know, toward Trevor Burbank. So here I am with my little scribe pencil and pad, and I look up and there is Larry Holmes flying through the air, <laughs> trying to take out Burbank again. Of course he gets to him because it's, you know, not a hard target. And they just kind of rolled around. Nothing really happened. I mean, nobody really got hurt badly. I mean, they broke, I guess it got broken. It got broken up pretty quickly. But I still feel for that couple because I think he might have dented his... <laughs> The roof. How do you something. report that to your insurance company, right? <laughs> Nobody's going to believe that story. Former heavyweight champion went flying off of my car. <laughs> Honest. It's one of those Geico commercial deals, you know? Yeah, right. So, <laughs> so, so how did that wrap up? Do you end up, did they ever fight? After oh, it gets better. No, no, it gets better. They never fought, but... We so now we filed whatever story we could get out of it in the, in the short, and we need to. But nobody's talked to Larry about it, uh, and the whole genesis of why Larry wanted to fight him would because when he was talking about Jenny and all this, Larry's wife was in the press conference. Diane was in the press conference, and she was not at all happy oh. <laughs> with the commentary that was going on. She so didn't even Larry, know about Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> 
8675309. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, right. Old school reference, kids. Now we know what that, that number is all about. <laughs> so anyway, um, so we saw him and talked to Larry. So Larry, true story, also fancies himself as a singer. So he set up a gig at the club. Maybe that's where the couple was going to see Larry Holmes sing. But he had his band with him. It was like, you know, kind of a R&B thing. <laughs> so, so add the the to to add the piece of resistance to the whole thing at about twelve twelve thirty at night. There is Larry up on stage singing "Brick House" <laughs> <laughs> with his with his R and B band, <laughs> and, and that's a wrap, kids. <laughs> And now, and now you're supposed to make sense of this and write a story, <laughs> right? You know, when people say, what was it like to be a sports writer? I'm going to tell them, listen to George Diaz's story about Larry Holmes and Trevor Burbick fighting in a parking lot in Hollywood, Florida. It's on there, YouTube. You can find it on YouTube. I, I am not, a, I'm not exaggerating any of this. It was a great, it was like, oh, it's just too good to be true. Well, you find all kinds of characters in boxing, and one of the characters that you know better than anybody was Roberto Duran, the Hands of Stone, and you actually end up being the ghostwriter for the 2016 autobiography, I Am Duran. And I can only imagine what the writing process with Roberto Duran was like. You got to know him so well. What was it like? I would. I joke that it's a two-drink minimum, probably a two-bottle minimum to get through the problem. <laughs> Duran was one of the Duran was one of the all-time intimidating guys. I mean, the hands of stone. I mean, he won world championships in four different weight classes. I mean, he was just a vicious fighter. What was he like to deal with when you're trying to be his ghostwriter? Challenging is the best word I can think of. He was. He could be really. Here's the deal with Duran. He's just a street guy, a third-grade education. Uh, he could be a real pain to deal with at times. And there was more than once that I went to Panama and the first time out after about three or four days, he disappeared and went, he had something else to do. He had some memorabilia show and either he, you know, he got booked and he didn't care. He just left. And there was another time that the same, some, something similar happened. But the good thing is that his family was very, very, I came, especially his son, Robin, we became close. His wife's a sweetheart. And, you know, they really shared everything. This is where one of those deals where you get some people that want the, the varnished version of reality, but they had, you know, all his womanizing, everything was out there uh, for the world to see. And, um, it, but going back to Roberto, he could be surly and difficult. He could also be just... He, he also has a sweet, you know, he could be a very sweet man with a big heart. I mean, it got to the point where every time I'd see him, we'd hug and he does, you know, the kind of laugh thing. He'd kiss me on the cheek kind of thing, mm. you know. So so you have these, it's almost like this uh, yin and yang, if you will, Todd, that you you saw this, this guy. You see where that kind of street tough uh, brutality, if you will, because he dealt, I mean, boxing's a blood sport. Boxing's the most brutal sport I can think of. But there's also this this other side to him that um, that's why I ended up losing so much money. He would get, literally give money away. He would, you know, people would come up to him, knock on his door, and he'd give him money during his prime. In Panama. He could never keep it. Yeah, in Panama. And he's lived in the same house, and it's like forever. 
It's not like, you know, city of Panama and Panama City, he's a god there. He still is. Well, was he receptive to the idea of you writing about his life story? I mean, he obviously signed on to do it, but was he cooperative? He was cooperative, but he wasn't very good about details. So I was able to, in, in putting it together, I was able to get to places I needed to be in certain points of his life by talking to other people, whether it was his manager, Luis de Cubas was great. I mean, I talked to Bob Arab. I talked to Sugar Ray Leonard. That I didn't need, I, I didn't need Duran uh, for, for every single bit of information. You know, he could just, I could, I could set the scene just by talking to as many people as I could during moments that were, that were significant, you know, in his, in his career. Right. And I was able to do that. And, um, and that was the biggest challenge because Duran was not somebody who was, who was going to give me, you know, at the end of the day, he didn't give me a lot to work with at times. He wasn't very introspective, right? Yeah. No, he wasn't introspective at all, but I was able to get into his head simply by using other voices uh, and people in his past. And the most challenging aspect um, became the no mask thing. Yeah, I wanted, to, I wanted to ask you specifically about that. You know, Duran was such a great fighter. Like, like we said, four world championships at four different weight classes. And yet, unfortunately for him, he's known for that one moment when he quit. He quit during the fight with the, the rematch fight with Sugar Ray Leonard. And it's famously known as no mas, which is what he said to the referee. What did he say about that moment when he quit against Leonard? Well, we had to do some serious negotiating because it was at first he was sticking to the fact that he had a stomach ache and he didn't feel well. And, you know, he just he thought he you know, he, he did think this. He did think that if he if he just quit, he knew he was going to lose. So he, he did quit. He knew he was losing. He was frustrated. He quit. That's the bottom line. But he also thought he was going to get a rematch because it'd be one one. Right. So, um, but he didn't, he miscalculated how badly it would be perceived. And I had to, between him and talking, uh, as I mentioned, his son was very good, Robin. I said, look, we've got to get away from the tummy ache narrative. You've got to come clean with it. So he came about as clean as you can. And I, I perhaps, I probably should have had the book with me, but he, um, you know, he basically said that. Yeah, I just was frustrated. It wasn't my night. I thought I was going to get a rematch. Um, so I quit. Um, but uh, but at first, it, he was being obstinate, saying that, oh, my stomach hurt. No, I was in the stomach. It was his pride that hurt the most. Mm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned that Duran, um, you know, he was such a tough guy, a street guy, a ferocious guy. Uh, but he could also be a kind-hearted guy, too, uh, a soft guy, you know, and I think about sometimes there are athletes like that, that their public persona is out there. And yet as a sports writer, you get to see a little bit behind a curtain. And one of the athletes that I think about in those terms is another guy that you came across, and that's Dale Earnhardt, <clears throat> the old man, Dale Earnhardt Sr. And you covered NASCAR for a lot of years uh, for the Tribune Company, uh, which owned the Orlando Sentinel. And you were there in February of 2001. I can't believe it's been 20 years already. The day that Earnhardt died at the Daytona 500. Um, what comes to mind when you think about that race? 
how surreal it all was because first of all it didn't look if you look at it it didn't look like a bad accident at all does it no you, you know, see, just you see way side. worse right right he just hits the side of the car but he hit it with just that the angle was was just right in a bad way and um he didn't have any head and neck restraints which became a point of contention and later would obviously lead to great um changes in the in the in nascar for nascar um but just kind of sitting there waiting for over an hour and the silence and people like ed hinton who knew um had covered a bunch more nascar races than i ever had yeah ed was a great great race and, race and ed knew ed knew that it was not good you know it's not good also because um ken schrader who went to see him uh, another driver right after the race kind of looked in the car and you could see him flinching. And I was able to get to all three of the EMTs who were there wow. and they could only, they, they shared enough. I mean, they shared a good bit of information. They just needed to keep some things for themselves. But from what they were able to tell me that he was basically gone when they got to him, you know, I mm. mean, we're talking someone who's, in, you know, he was, bleeding you know head you know through the eyes through the nose it was bad yeah and i remember there was a female there that said uh one of the emts was female and she just said she said a prayer for him hmm. you know um closed his eyes and said a prayer for him so um, you were you were in the press box and like you said the, the race is ending it's the final lap there's this wreck, but there's also a finish to the race. So it had to be just really bizarre, the atmosphere in the press box. It was. And I was down uh, with NASCAR. You get, you know, there's a press box upstairs. And then most of the action then happens downstairs at the infield media center. And that's where we were and just waited for a good hour until after, um, you know, Mike Helton, then I believe he was president at the time of NASCAR, said, you know, We've lost Dale Earnhardt, and that pretty much shook everybody to the core. What was it about Earnhardt? Why did he touch so many people who love NASCAR? Well, NASCAR, uh, NASCAR is built on this. You know, they were, you know, started out as moonshiners, right? So, you've got this blue collar base that, you know, kind of good old boys that like to kick some butt. And he was essential. He was he was just true to to that. And it was you know we talk about athletes and putting on you know going through PR PR people and layers and all that. There weren't a lot of layers to Earnhardt. What you see is what you got. He didn't take any nonsense from people. I remember there was a really just a few days before that they used to have this IROC series, which was different drivers in different uh, race categories. Mm-hmm. You know, it was like international something of champion, international racing of champions or something. And uh, so these open wheel guys race with NASCAR guys. It was just a fun kind of little sprint race. And a guy named you know, one of the drivers named Eddie Cheever, who was part of the, you know, the open wheel wine and cheese crowd, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Somehow he got messed. He got tangled up with Earnhardt. And I think he took Earnhardt out by mistake. I mean, he didn't do it on purpose. And I remember Cheever's going into the, into the media center, and I think he was terrified that he thought because because Earnhardt on the on the uh, cool down lap 
after you know he had wrecked Earnhardt and you know Earnhardt was able I guess back get back end onto the field but finish X number of laps behind Earnhardt took him out during the warm up lap warm down lap after the race <laughs> just as payback. a payback <laughs> and, and I remember Cheever going up in the press box or up in the media center in the infield media center and saying I have no issues with Mr. Earnhardt whatsoever you know he was like please don't kill me now yeah he wasn't jumping off somebody's Toyota trying to get the Dale Earnhardt no no <laughs> you weren't doing that and that's how Dale was and you know it's just you know, he was one of those guys who was just kind of cranky and uh, yeah. had a heart, too, had a great heart, but also could be a real SOB. Yeah, I, you know, I had a, a, an interaction with Earnhardt once at the Brickyard in Indianapolis, and, uh, you know, he had such a presence to him, right? I remember s- seeing him standing in the garage, and he could just be standing there, and you're like, you know, it's Earnhardt. And so anyway, they had a breakfast with some riders and some drivers, and, and it was me and about Three or four other riders were just standing around with with Dale, and he was really good. He, he was actually, you know, engaging and, and talking about different things. And some radio guy came over and said, can I join in? And Earnhardt says, yeah, sure, go ahead. And the radio guy was all nervous. You could just tell that this was his big moment. He was he probably practiced in front of the mirror the night before, and he, he goes into it. He goes, three, two, one. I'm here with Dale Jarrett and oh. Earnhardt. Earnhardt goes, I'm not Dale Jarrett, turns around and stalked off. And all the blood in that radio guy's face just drained away. And the riders, we were pissed because we're like, yeah. man, we had Earnhardt and he was great. And he just left because of you. But at the same time, I was also thinking, oh, that poor bastard. Yeah. <laughs> he finally got his big interview and he just missed it. <laughs> you know, you think of Earnhardt, you think of uh, the intimidator. Behind that, he could be a softy too, right? Yeah. And he was, he was, yeah. he had a, he had a great charitable heart. He did certain things that um, he didn't want to get publicity for. Remember in the 1998 when he won the Daytona 500 and he had taken a, a girl with spina bifida, had given him a lucky penny and he took it and he glued it to the dashboard of his car and he won the race. You know, he finally won the Daytona 500 and he never really told anybody, but word got around that as a return favor to thank you, Earnhardt bought the family a special van to meet all of her transportation needs, you know, and that's the kind of thing that a guy that has that rough exterior, the intimidator, he's not really going to let you know. But behind that sometimes is a heart of gold. Mm. Well, NASCAR was a, a sport and still is that just touches so many people and the people in the South and and you covered it for many, many years down there in Florida and covered it so well as you did so many different sports. And um, it's been great talking to you about all these different things. We've been all over the place, George. We have. We've been with Shaq. We've been in Cuba. <laughs> we've been uh, Larry Larry Holmes in the <laughs> parking lot of a hotel fighting in Hollywood, Florida. And we've been in Daytona. And uh, I think that speaks to uh, to your career, your great career, I uh, I was joking with you early on about your basketball skills only because I love you like a brother. I've had a lot of respect for you. You were great to me when I was a young guy in Cincinnati. And whenever we crossed paths, we always had some good laughs. And uh, you're a guy of a big heart, you know, advocate for foster kids and Alzheimer's disease. You've taken in dozens of foster, child, foster children. And uh, you've done a lot for your community down there in uh, Orlando, Florida. You, you really are 
such a big part of Central Florida down there. And uh, it's because of your work as a journalist, but also because of your own heart. So I appreciate you taking the time and, uh, and spending it with us. Well, thank you, my friend. Those words really do mean a lot. And I'm glad, uh, you know, I might have uh, provided a few pointers now and then, but I think you, you got this and you obviously carved out, have carved out a great career for yourself. So pat on the back, right back at you. All right, my friend. Thank you for your time. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Pressbox Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcomed here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and her audio engineer Dave Douglas. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast